This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. We've all been down the path of integration, normalization, and operationalizing our security data. The common theme is a traditional SIM can't keep up, which is why we say run Panther. Panther normalizes your security data and integrates into your security operations pipeline to provide complete visibility across your environment. Panther is a cloud native security analytics platform built for engineers by engineers. Learn more by visiting runpanther.io. Thank you, Panther, for sponsoring this episode. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to your favorite podcast, Hacker Valley Studio. If you work in technology or even cybersecurity, you may have heard the term skills gap. But is there really a skills gap or are we just approaching this problem the wrong way? In this episode, we speak to Andy Ellis. Andy has operated as a CISO for over two decades, and he recently started a startup. He also shares his perspective on the skills gap that we all think is out there. Andy is a wealth of knowledge and looking forward to hearing what you think. Enjoy the episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have a fellow security tinkerer, Andy Ellis. Andy is an operating partner at YL Ventures and has been inducted into the CISO Hall of Fame. Andy, I know you've run security for many decades. You, you ran security at Akamai for over two decades, and you've recently founded a company that is currently coming out of stealth. I can't wait to hear more about it, but really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ron and Chris. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Love our conversations on our Friday calls with the Tinkers. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure. So uh, I think I'm most well known for I was the CSO at Akamai for about 20 years. Uh, before that, I was in the Air Force. I did information warfare for the 609th Information Warfare Squadron, which was part of Central Command. If I go back even deeper into the future, I get out of the security world. I was a wine steward, won the Award of Excellence from the Wine Spectator for the wine cellar I managed. And I worked at Disneyland doing costume issue. Uh, which I've got the Spirit of Disneyland Award on the wall behind me. So I've got this really eclectic acu accumulation of awards that uh, I think set me apart, at least are a little bit distinctive. So what is it about your personality that, that, that puts you in these unique situations to win these awards? Is that something that came up for you as a child or is that something you developed in adulthood? So I think it's a, a something I had and something I've developed. I'm a, a natural person who just like takes systems apart. I was a hacker before I knew what hacking was, but not in the terms of just like, oh, how do I break into a system? But how do I just use the system to do different things? 
when I was at Disney, we were rolling out this you know, new mainframe system. We were literally using handwritten cards to keep track of inventory. Like you would check out a costume and I'd have to like write your social security number down on the top of it and then like check off what items we had given you. You'd get a copy. I'd get a copy. And we moved to a mainframe system and it had four unused buttons on it. And I found the manual that let me program macros. And I just looked at our process. And I'm like, you know, we push the same sequence of buttons. And so I can just program a macro in to be like these function keys that weren't used. Like my whole department loved me, uh, except for the supervisor who everybody said, well, why didn't you come up with this idea? And so they yelled at me for not telling them before I just went and did it. <laughs> wow. So what other kind of things did you experience hacking in? Like, I'm sure it wasn't just this macro thing. What really helped you develop that, that skill of hacking technology and other things? Yeah, a lot of it's process. You know, when I was in the Air Force, I was stationed down in South Carolina, in Sumter, South Carolina, for those of you from the area, so you know exactly how in the middle of nowhere we were. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the military, you have a thing called liberty and a thing called leave. Liberty just means you don't have to be at work right now. But leave means like actual vacation, like you can go away and you're not expected to be nearby. And so weekends are just liberty. You're technically still working. And you're not allowed to go very far, 150 miles from where you are. Sumter is not 150 miles from anywhere you want to be. So you want to go further than that. And so we discovered like this little loophole in the rules, which was nobody recorded that you were taking liberty until after you got back. But you had to have your paperwork in before you left. So we made a deal with our admin section that as long as we showed up in the office by 7.55 on Monday morning, we could just sort of take the leave papers and shred those. And they didn't care. If there'd been a recall over the weekend, then our leave papers were there and we were covered. But that way we weren't spending leave on liberty. It's like this little thing that you do to, to look at a system and just say, like, how can I tweak it to my advantage? The, the software pieces of it are just doing it at scale, in my opinion. So what would you it seems like you've definitely done that to your career. What would you say is the number one hack that you've done for your entire career that spanned, like Ron was saying, over a couple of decades? Yeah, anything that you do that provides value, find some way to stop doing it, which sounds exactly the opposite from good career advice, doesn't it? Like most people would say, no, no, the, find the thing that produces value and do more of it. The trick is if you do that, you become irreplaceable and irreplaceable people are dangerous because someday they're going to leave and nobody else knows how to do this. And you're going to have to get over it. So you might as well just get rid of them right now. The trick instead is to be unclonable. You want to have such a wide variety of skill sets. Nobody could ever do all of the things you do. But anything you do that provides value, you teach somebody else how to do it and give them the work. I love that. And one thing that I hear often, especially when you want to acquire skills that are so good that people can ignore you, you, you don't want just the valuable skills. You want the rare and valuable skills, the skills that can't be replicated or that haven't been replicated yet. And I think that We've run into that with cybersecurity yes. in many ways, like just probably being in cybersecurity for you for over two decades, you were probably the first one around, right? I'm sure when you first started your career, there wasn't really anyone doing security. Were you originally hired to do security for these companies? Yeah. So for Akamai, I was originally hired to do security. My first job title was senior security engineer because I was coming out of the Air Force and they were tripling what I was getting made. So just to get to an en a senior engineer level. So I was happy with it. I got promoted to chief architect six months later when they realized they're like, oh, like you actually can do more than just like 
harden the OS like you can see across the product set and see what we need to do. And then I took on the management of the security team. You know, the first thing they made me do was lay off half the team. That was a, a fun introduction to management. And then I just grew it. But that's what I was hired to do. But I don't think they knew what security meant when they hired me. And so I got to write my own job description most days. Like, what do I want to do today? Oh, what, what looks like really good work that nobody is doing? And let's go do that. For everyone that's listening, whenever you come on the show, we send a link where you go and schedule your episode. And we have some questions to kind of get a feel for where the direction might go in the episode. And some people leave them blank. Some people add things. Andy, you added something that I absolutely could not wait to talk to you about because <laughs> I've been saying the opposite for the last five years at least. You're saying that there is no talent shortage. I'd love to hear where that, that comes from, and let's talk about that for a little bit. Sure. So I, I really picked this up actually talking to folks in the FBI because the FBI has a cyber division. They have a hard time hiring people for it. And somebody made the comment. They said, the cyber division is going to go away. And I said, why? He said, we don't have a car division anymore. Every agent is a car agent. And at some point, every agent will be a cyber agent. And that really resonated with me. And as I looked at hiring, and I want to dive deep into some of the problems around hiring. But as I looked at hiring, I had this realization that most cyber jobs are not cyber jobs at all. They're jobs with the flavor of cyber. So we had the state of the internet security report. One of my favorite things here, we write this report. And you know, most of the people who worked on it were former reporters and journalists that we hired them. Usually they had worked a security beat at some point in their career, but one of them hadn't because we could teach them the security flavor of the job much more easily than we could teach them the skills of being a journalist, which is what we needed for that job. On our compliance team, we had digital anthropologists, like people who were coming out of the digital humanities discipline or anthropology. We had librarians, our security architects, half of them. This was the first time they'd worked in security, but they'd worked in life safety. Very similar skill sets, just a different application. Now, there are still, I think, core security jobs. You know, when you want somebody who's going to actually look at source code, I think you need somebody who, you know, has a software engineering background with a very strong security bent. You want somebody who's going to really look at how a system will break. That is a very, you know, nuanced set of capabilities that you're going to need to build. But for 90% of the jobs in the security industry, like those are insertion jobs. You can bring somebody from outside and within two years, you won't realize that this is their first security job. I would say that probably a third or more of my team, it was their first security job and nobody knew it because they they were supported by amazing people around them. And they really had deep understanding of how to do the core work of the job in a way that somebody who'd you know, started out dealing with alerts was never going to understand. If we take this model that says, look, everybody who comes in has to you know, do DFIR and panes of glass and security operations, and then we're going to promote you out of doing that work to be a manager or a program manager or work in compliance. First of all, we're throwing away a deep technical skill set. Right. Because it's deeper than what you're going to need over in that space. And why do we think you're actually going to be good at that job? Like technical skills are actually the easiest skills to understand if people have them, which makes them the easiest to train. People think of non-technical or soft skills. I hate soft skills, but since everybody uses it, you know, I think of it as people and process skills. Those are really hard to teach and really hard to evaluate if people have them. 
And those are the ones we need more of. And you don't find them as much in security, but you find them everywhere else. I completely agree with that. And the reason why I do is one of the things, I come from a threat intelligence background. And I always say that threat intelligence is one of the easiest fields to get into, but one of the hardest things to master. You could take someone that has really good research skills, really good communication skills, and turn them into a threat intelligence analyst pretty quickly. But Mm -hmm. what I'm seeing in the community right now is that there's this push to go towards more engineering-minded security practices. If everyone started to go into that realm where every security team is pretty much an security engineering team, do you think there would create a bit of a gap because there wouldn't be enough people to fill those specific roles? Or do you think there's something we could do there? But that's a management gap. That's not a, a skills gap. That's you just hired the wrong people. Like my team was one third architecture one-third intelligence and one-third compliance like that was basically our breakdown it was almost even it wasn't like by design that's just where we tended to put people and you know we did move people there were people who moved between those groups but if i tried to do all of the work with the architects it would have been done less well and honestly the architects were really expensive like much harder to build an architect than to build a compliance manager but the architect is not as good at the job as the compliance manager is Where are we going wrong, right? You're describing the problem is not what the problem that we thought it was. It's actually something different. Where did where did we go wrong? Like where did managers go wrong? Where did CISOs go wrong? And where did the recruiters go wrong when looking for these security engineers or these security professionals? So they all went wrong somewhere different. So let me start with the recruiters. The recruiters went wrong in the follow up to the New Haven firefighter case. And for those not familiar with this, this is a case where the city of New Haven wanted to override the firefighter test to increase diversity. One of the few tests that we actually have that are truly neutral, they wanted to overrule it because they didn't like the the disparate impact. Turns out it's very hard to have both a fair test and one that doesn't have disparate impact when there's so much disparate inputs into a system. And certainly when you're measuring on small sample sizes, there's no way not to have disparate impact just with random luck from time to time. Um, But what happens out of that is the advice that is given to recruiting teams is to maximize the number of neutral tests, which is actually very weird to me because the whole New Haven case didn't hinge on the neutral test problem. The neutral tests were actually there. But to a recruiter, a neutral test is things like, do you have a degree? Do you have N years of experience with X technology? And so that's what recruiters are often doing is they're just filtering on the most requirements that they possibly can. Well, we also know from a bunch of other studies that the more requirements you put onto a job, the more people from underrepresented groups are going to turn away from applying for the job. We can talk about why that is. There's, I think, a lot of different reasons. I don't think we truly understand as much about why as we think we do, but that's just a known effect. Now, what happens is all you have to do is get past the recruiter. So the recruiter can't really tell if you have seven years of experience with X technology. They're just going to look and see, well, do you have X technology somewhere on your resume? And do you have seven years of experience on your resume? And if so, great, we're golden. The fact that that technology only came out three years ago, they totally miss it. And then we see that, you know, we see that you put out a in a job requirement for, you know, I need some of two years of experience with this technology as an engineer. And when the recruiting team and the compensation team say, oh, you want to have a senior engineer, we need to bump that from two years to four years. You're like, but the technology has only been out for two years. I literally wanted the the one cutting edge person. And a senior engineer isn't going to somehow be a time traveler. So they add more and more of these on. 
And so that's what the recruiters are doing. And they're not getting any pushback from a lot of managers, whether engineering or security. Then there's a problem that on the security side, people don't really understand how to hire a team. I don't know if either of you love football, but I'm a huge football fan. I'm a Patriots fan. I'm sorry for those people who are offended by it. <laughs> well, and right now we have this really interesting dilemma here in New England, like the dilemma that people either would like to have or not like to have. We don't know who the quarterback's going to be. Maybe we'll know by the time this one airs. Right. But we have two entirely different quarterback candidates, right? We've got Cam Newton and Mac Jones. And literally there is like nothing that these two guys have in common, except that their uniform number starts with one. Like mm-hmm. that's basically the only thing they've got in common. You know, one of them is a you know, stand-up pocket passer. The other guy is mobile and fast on his feet. Like, we're going to run completely different offenses with these guys. Imagine if I was trying to hire a quarterback. That, what job description could I write that both of them would work for? What most companies do is basically would have said, oh, Tom Brady has left. Let us write a job description for Tom Brady, except 20 years younger. Right. You know, I'll tell you, first of all, Tom Brady 20 years ago did not look like Tom Brady today. So right. he himself would not have gone with that. But you narrow down your focus. Someone leaves and you want to find a specific person rather than saying, what are the like five people I could find, any of whom would make my team better? That was a trick we would sometimes do. We'd actually literally open up five requisitions. The recruiting team was not always a fan of the strategy. And we would run them in parallel And we'd say, oh, look, we've got a great candidate on track two. We're going to go with that and we're going to close down the other four positions. They didn't always love that I was doing it. It was more work, but I got great people out of it. And sometimes people we didn't expect. And then the other thing we sometimes do is we write all of the desired skills we would like for our whole team. But then we put them onto one job description. So instead of saying you are part of a team that will have mastered these 12 technologies, we say we want you to have had as many of those 12 as possible. And whereas you who wrote it were thinking, if you just walked in with one of those, I would be happy. That's not how the person reads it. So those are the hiring manager and the recruiter. Let's talk about what the CISO is often doing wrong. First of all, the CISO is often hands-off, right? They're letting people operate this broken process without challenging it and saying, hey, what are we doing differently? They're not building diversity into their pipeline. When I hired, some of my hiring was entirely our intern pool. Some of our hiring was through a retraining program that we called the Akamai Technical Academy, where we were taking people who'd been either out of the career field for a few years, maybe raising a family, or had gotten a degree and then realized, well, it's a technical degree, but in a discipline I don't want to work in. And so we would literally, we'd retrain them, we'd pay them to go through a six-month training program, and then a six-month functionally an internship, and then we would offer them a job. But we paid them that whole time. But what it let me do was say, look, I'm going to keep hiring out of both of those pools. And then we're also going to go out onto the career market and look for people who seem interesting, who have great skills, maybe in a discipline we don't use today, and figure out how we're going to use them. And so you, the CISO, have to provide that leadership. See, I, I think you've converted me. Now that I'm thinking through this entire problem, and you're right. If we stop over-promoting, because, you know, what do we do with somebody that's been doing a security engineering job for so long and they're great? We make them a manager. We take right. away the, 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 the technical component of their job, and now we say, now go lead people, where that's not always the best case. And in fact, sometimes people don't want to do that. They right. want to stay technical. So continue to, to increase their pay, continue to promote them in their job field and keep them there. 
And for everybody else, like look in creative places in order to bring them in. And that's one thing I've always liked about you, Andy, is that you really focus on the philosophy of leadership and yep. really thinking intelligently about how do we solve tough problems. I'd love to hear, like, what are some of your major tenets for leadership that you go by today? So I think the number one tenant is that leadership is about investing in your people. And that's a little different from what people sometimes think about servant leadership, which is serving your people. It is about at every opportunity, how do you input resources into your staff to make them better? You're going to get more work out of them. You're going to make them feel taken care of. Like you get all the benefits people mostly think about leadership, but leadership is about investment. And so what do you need to do to invest in your people? And then you just run that against everything you do because there's not one panacea. It's not like you say, oh, I have an epiphany. I'm going to do this one thing and I will be an amazing leader. Instead, you have to basically do everything 1% better. So think about performance reviews. Like you, you two have done performance reviews, I assume, at some point in your career. So many. Right? <laughs> and how often do you do them? Every year. Once a year? Once a year. And as somebody who's received one, now don't be a manager, be the person receiving one. Is the purpose of that performance review really to justify the bonus you're getting or maybe to justify a paper trail to fire you in the future? Supposedly. Right? Do you get any other benefit out of the performance review? Maybe some feedback. Yeah, maybe some feedback. Once a year, maybe some feedback is not leadership. Like performance management is an ongoing investment. If you surprise somebody at a performance review, they're going to be like, wait, you're giving me feedback now on something I did wrong nine months ago? That's horrible feedback. Think about photography. Do, you, do either of you do photography, even just with bit. an iPhone? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. So if you think back to before the smartphone, if you want to be a professional photographer, you would take a picture and then you'd have to go develop it. And so by the time you would get feedback on how bad your picture was or how good it was, a month might have passed. And you got to remember, well, what was I thinking? What did I do? How do I get better? But now when you take pictures with a smartphone, you take the picture and you're immediately like, oh, hey, my finger was over the lens. Mm -hmm. Or, yep. God, that lighting is awful. The person is backlit and I can't see their face. You are learning instantaneously what you did wrong and what you can do better. And that's what performance management should be. Performance management is not about finding the people who aren't good and getting rid of them. Performance management is about finding all of the people and helping them be better. And just doing that a little bit every day. All right, Andy, you can go ahead and drop the mic. It is on <laughs> fire right now. <laughs> nice. These are some really good lessons. I think that there is so much to unpack here. And, you know, when I'm thinking about all of this, I'm thinking, you know, if so, if I had a leader like this in my life, like, Right now, during COVID, this digital transformation, work from home, I'd probably be one of the hottest people on the job market. There'd be all these companies that are trying to steal me away from Andy. What are your philosophies on keeping the talent after you invest, you know, these six-month training programs, these two-year ramp-ups? How do you keep the talent after they've acquired the skills and the knowledge and they already have these auxiliary skills that they can use in other areas too? Well, the biggest benefit that I had, well, fortunately, they don't work for me anymore. So I guess you could go steal them. I'm not trying to defend <laughs> them. But the biggest benefit I had is they wanted to work for me. And they wanted to work with the people who were in that community. My goal wasn't to say, look, I'm going to overpay you so that nobody can possibly hire you away. In fact, I would encourage people to go look. Right? I want them to know what's on the outside, partly so they can plan for their next three jobs. But when they discover that there aren't a lot of great leaders out there, 
how many people have as an attitude, this was literally, we told people, we said, look, the next four years of output from you is more important than the next four weeks. So if you just needed to take four weeks off for any reason, we'll figure out how to make it work. But if you're not feeling well today, go home. Do you need a mental health day? Go home. Go take care of yourself right now. That's on us to figure out how to work around that. Because I care more that you're going to keep showing up and you're going to be producing at a high level for a long time. If the rest of the industry copied that, then I would have worried about people stealing my folks away. But <laughs> this attitude wasn't catching on. But here was the, the stunning thing was the 15 months before I left Akamai, I didn't have a single person leave my organization. Not one. 94 people, zero turnover, 15 months. Wow. Mm. Like it speaks for itself. Think about how much time and energy you spend on turnover, hiring new people, getting them up to speed. Like that's expensive. I didn't have that cost at all. My people were basically like 20% more effective than any comparable team just because we weren't turning anyone over. It seems like you've got something right. I think maybe you've failed enough in your past that now you've become this like enlightened leader and now you're teaching others. What are some of the other ways that you're passing down some of this knowledge? Because obviously the folks that are listening to this episode right now, they've got the price of admission for sure. But how are you sharing this for everyone else that's in our community? So I got two things coming along in that. So one is a book underway. It's about 80% written. And I'm working with an agent right now. We've got it in front of a number of publishing houses. Unfortunately, the leadership space is really hot and heavy already. So we haven't yet had somebody who's who's bid on it. But just like 32 teams passed on Tom Brady, because the Patriots did too, you know, five rounds, somebody's going to bite on it and they'll realize what a, what a wonderful book it is. So I've got that going on, but that'll probably be a year away at least before publication. On the other side, you know, we talked about my company coming out of stealth. So that's a micro leadership training program we're developing. It'll be done through one minute videos that teach you, here's a task to go do today. Because the biggest problem in leadership development, first of all, we do not give people training until we give them jobs, which is exactly the wrong order to do anything. Imagine if you hired somebody in as a, you know, the sake threat intelligence researcher had them starting and then six months later said, oh, hey, by the way, we're going to teach you how to do threat intelligence. <laughs> right. What were right. they doing for the previous six months? But mm -hmm. that's what we do in management and leadership. Like we promote people and then we put them on the training track. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we need to train people early. And leadership is not just a thing for managers. Every person in a workplace is a leader because your colleagues will look at you and see what you do and emulate it. So we think that we can provide this in a subscription service, you know, one minute video once a week that's just distilled down. Here's the lesson. Here's why it matters. And here's something to go practice this week. If it works for you, great. Adopt it. Make it part of your, your style. If it doesn't work for you, then don't worry about it. Like next week, you get something else to try. That's the goal there. And in fact, just had a film producer in my basement with me yesterday, helping me lay out the equipment for recording those episodes. So as soon as I get those all set up, we'll start recording them. That's incredible. Andy, there's someone that's listening to this podcast and either they've dealt with bad leaders in the past or them themselves, they feel like there are gaps in their leadership ability and they want to take it to that next level. They want to give back to the community and to their teams. On that leadership journey, what is that one piece of advice that you would have for everybody out there? It's the same piece. It's, it's just coming from different angles. So one is a piece of humility. The lesson that you think you learned might not be the lesson that other people need to hear. 
The flip side of that is test and refine your ideas. Find somebody that you can trust and talk to and talk to them. And then when they tell you you're full of it, listen to them. Because our job as a communicator who wants to give back and share these lessons is to recognize that if somebody didn't hear the lesson, it's our fault as the communicator. We didn't teach it well enough. So always be working to improve how you communicate an idea until you really do have it distilled down to something that will work for someone else. Outstanding. There you have it. A masterclass on being a leader and putting to rest the whole notion of that there is a talent shortage. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on the mics with us today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you have coming out, what are the best ways that people can do that? Probably the easiest places are going to be LinkedIn and Twitter. If you only want to hear about professional stuff, that'll be on LinkedIn. I'm CSO Andy there. Twitter also CSO Andy. And there you get a a little more of all the different things I do. So you get business, you'll get security, you'll get wine, you will get football. You get a little bit of everything. Perfect. We will be sure to drop that in the show notes. I would highly recommend everyone to follow your LinkedIn and Twitter. Andy, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see everyone next time. Thanks for having me here in the Valley. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.